I'm going to read the first part. We have a responsive here. If we could all stand up. That first slide there, Andrew. I'll read the part that's in italics. We'll read together the parts that are in bold. Take heart. Jeremiah says, the days are surely coming. The days are coming when God will fulfill God's promises. And God will execute justice and righteousness throughout the land, and all people will be safe. Come, let us worship the Lord. Lord, we confess we don't always know who you are and what it is you're doing. We ignore, we get lost, we feel overwhelmed, we perpetuate our ignorance and inabilities and call them wisdom and success. We confess we get so tired of waiting for things to change that we give up. But you have promised that justice will ring out and that all will be fulfilled. Grant us today the hope we need. Give us all eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to discern, and hearts to love and obey even as we wait. Amen. You can have a seat. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the teaching elders here at um, Grace Church. We're really glad you're here. I know a lot of people are traveling over this holiday season. I hope yours was delightful. But I got to tell you, for me, the situation was hopeless. I'd done my best, but it wasn't near good enough. And it wasn't going to fail because of a lack of effort or a lack of opportunity or a lack of expense or a lack of passion. It's just that all of those things weren't nearly enough. The whole thing was beyond my ability to fix. The despair of the situation was heightened by a toxic soup of guilt and shame and fear. The guilt of knowing my own culpability in creating the situation and the shame that comes from others piling on and adding to it. The terror of recognizing the sins that I'd committed and the sins committed against me. The systems of sin perpetuating the pain and brokenness and the very real presence of evil that actively was seeking my destruction. The situation was hopeless. And yeah, I'm talking about my life. Not just any one specific incident, but my life as a whole. Realizing that even when I give everything that I have, my best, my most, my first, it's just not enough. And not just barely enough, but not even close to being enough. And all the emotions that attend to that, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the despair. Pretty bleak, huh? You don't even know the half of it. But now, before you think I'm being overly dramatic, let me tell you why I have such a dark assessment. It is because of the good news. The reason why I have such a dark assessment of my own situation is because of the clarity of the gospel. With the joyous promises of freedom, healing, and salvation 
also comes something really subversive. And this is what sets the gospel apart from self-help. This is what sets the gospel apart from other pretend good newses. As the gospel subverts all other ways of hoping. The gospel subverts all other things that we can count as true. It exposes the reality of our situation without it. And to really understand the good news is truly good news, we first have to come face to face, stone cold sober with the bad news. The truth about our sin. The truth about our, the sins that have been done to us. The truth about the systems of sin we live in and perpetuate and the reality of evil among us. You see, without the good news, we can get by. Without the declaration of Jesus, without the declaration of the coming of God to save us, we can figure that there must be a way that we can muddle through all this. But the good news exposes all that as sham. This week we begin our celebration of Advent, the coming of Jesus. But to really understand what that means, we have to have a good long look into the world into which Jesus comes, into the lives into which Jesus comes, into our lives. Our text this week comes from the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the prophet who was continually reluctant to deliver the message of woe. I think we can all identify with that at some point in our life the reluctance to tell the truth when the truth is nothing but bad news. But that's Jeremiah. In this particular context, the city of Jerusalem had been besieged by the Babylonians for over a year. Ultimately, it was going to fall and its kings and elites exiled to Babylon. But in that precarious moment before the fall, the citizens of Jerusalem were trapped They were suffocating in a city that was rapidly running out of food and water, rapidly acquiring sickness and disease. Jeremiah writes the words we read today from prison. And he was put in prison for preaching truth. Right? Isn't that how we work as human beings? All our enemies are all around us. All our enemies are besieging us. Our own sin, we've created this situation, this desperate situation where we're in, and someone comes and they speak truth to us, and what do we do? Instead of receiving that, we're like, no, we're putting you in a hole. We're going to take you and just shut you up. I do not want to hear that, right? The very thing that exposes the reality of our situation We will do anything to shut it up. Because we know once we admit it, we know once we admit our hopelessness, we know once we admit the severity of the situation, all of those props that we use to keep us going will crumble and will fail. But the words are not just of destruction, they are also of hope. Because for us to really understand hope for what it is, we first have to understand our situation. 
as it is. Well, we're reading from Jeremiah 33. The text is not long this morning. We're starting in verse 14, going to verse 18. The prophet starts with these. He says, I, the Lord, affirm. The time will certainly come when I will fulfill my gracious promise concerning the nation of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will raise up for them a righteous descendant of David. He will do what is just and is right in the land. Under his rule, Judah will enjoy safety and Jerusalem will live in security. At that time, Jerusalem will be called, The Lord has provided us with justice. For I, the Lord, promise David will never lack a successor to occupy the throne over the nation of Israel. Nor will the Levitical priest ever lack someone to stand before me and continually offer up burnt offerings, sacrifice cereal offerings, and offer other sacrifices. This text contains one of the most specific and central promises that God makes. But it is also full of language that we don't have much connection with. A ruler over Jerusalem? Well, that's cool if you're in Israel, I guess. A priest continually offering cereal? I mean, nice. They're frosted flakes, maybe. Of course, this is metaphorical language. It's meant to get us to a deeper truth, but what does that mean? Well, friends, it's not, it's not hard to see that all this points us to Jesus. That all this is pointing to someone who is going to do something for us which we cannot do for ourselves. That is not going to be accomplished by our own strength, our own might. It's not going to be accomplished by our own volition. It's not going to be accomplished by trying harder, working harder, finally pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, getting our nose clean. That's not how it's going to happen. And that's not what's going to happen. It's not going to look, it's not going to happen in the way we think it's going to happen. See, Jesus fulfills this in a cosmic way that is imaged in this earthly way of temples and offerings. Look, there is no king on the throne of Jerusalem. And there hasn't been. No physical king in the physical place. Hasn't been for centuries. But there is a king on a throne. There is a king on a throne, and his kingdom far exceeds the borders of any single nation. There are no priests offering grain and burnt offerings in the temple. Heck, there's no temple to offer them in right now. Hasn't been for almost 2,000 years. So what does this mean? Does God, is God a liar? Is all this just come, some kind of fairy tale language from a long dead civilization? Or does it have a deeper meaning? Or do we hear the echoes of this when we hear the, when Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life, that offering to God, that thing that supplies? When he has declared the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice, do we not see that the things that were imaged, that were promised in this language are ultimately fulfilled, but in a much larger, deeper, more meaningful way? Not just for a specific people, but for all people. Not just for a specific time, but for all time. Not just for a specific language, but for all languages. God has done and is doing and will do everything that God has promised. The key to understanding that, of course, is Jesus. 
I've been thinking a lot about the Bible lately, how we approach it, what we can say about it, how we relate to it. And much of that is a discussion for a later time, but I will say this. If the Bible is to be true for us today, those of us in this room, those of us who go to Grace Church, those of us who call ourselves Christians, if the Bible is to be true for us, and, true, and us true to it, us true to the Bible, it has to speak to the world as it is. If the Bible is to be true to us and us true to, the wor- true to the Bible, it has to speak to the world as it is. And to us as we are and to God as God is. It has to be real and we have to be real with ourselves and each other as we encounter this. And you don't just wake up one morning and have that true. We need things to get us there. We need processes. We need ways. We need routes to encounter ourselves as we truly are. The world as it is and God as God is. Advent is one of those things that does that. This process of Advent, and I, I've told y'all this before. I, listen, I grew up Southern Baptist. I didn't even know what Advent was. We didn't celebrate Advent. I mean, we made a big deal out of Christmas, bigger deal out of Easter. But I didn't know what it was. And as I have come to see that one of the primary things driving a lack of discipleship, a lack of understanding in the church There's a lack of orientation. It's a lack of orienting ourselves to the stories, to the messages, to the ways of Jesus. All of us live by calendars. The question is not, are you going to live by a calendar or not? You're going to live by a calendar. School school calendar, football calendar, hunting calendar, business calendar, sales calendar. All of us live by calendars. What the liturgical calendar, the church calendar does, is it makes that our priority says the way that we are going to arrange our lives, the way that we are going to think, the way we are going to imagine our, arrange our imagination is around the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and rule of Jesus. And there's a lot more here than we can talk about on Sunday morning other than this. Today is the first day of the year. Today is the first day of the church year. Today is the first day the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a way of preparing ourselves. Advent is a way of letting go of the other things that demand our time, demand our imagination, demand our attention, our affections, our affiliations, and saying, no, we're going to start, we're going to orient, our basic orientation is going to be around this. It's going to be around the life of Jesus. It's going to be around the Word of God. Advent is for giving place also to the longings for God to finally do what finally God says God will do. To nourish our longing instead of stuffing or ignoring or rationalizing or distracting or anesthetizing them. It's a time to discipline our longings and expectations, all of our allegiances, affiliations, and affections. Advent suggest a different time of spiritual practice in which the feelings of peace do not lead to contentment with the way things are. We meditate. 
we read the stories again. We reflect on what it means to sit in darkness. I think it's appropriate, it's biblical to start the year with waiting. We start the year not with a bang, not with a celebration, not with fireworks, not with a big party. But we start the year literally in the tohu wolahu, the formless and the void that God spoke over in Genesis. We start with chaos. We start with longing. We start with mess. We start with the hopelessness of a world without God. And we wait. We refuse to despair. We refuse to give up. We refuse to set our affections on what's under the tree or what parties we're going to go to or how big our Christmas bonus is going to be. We refuse to substitute those things for what is truly going to deliver us. Who is truly going to deliver us? Jesus. And we light this candle as a symbol of light in the darkness. On the Jewish calendar, the day starts as the sun goes down. In the story of the Bible, all good things start in darkness and God coming into that darkness. It starts with restoration. It starts with creation. That's what we're longing for. Listen, I don't have to tell y'all. You've been through you've been through enough Christmas seasons to know. It's not enough. It's not enough. Whatever's under the tree, however many family members are going to come, however big the bonus, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to satisfy. Oh, it'll be nice. It can be nice. It can be pleasant. It can be joyful. I'm not necessarily saying it's going to be bad. I'm just telling you, it ain't enough. It's not enough, and it will never be enough. Whatever the world offers in place of this, the good news, is not enough. And that might be the most malicious thing about it, is that it promises to be. It sells itself out. How many car commercials are you going to see this <laughs> over the next four weeks? That that new car is going to solve everything. It's going to be the thing this year that makes it all better. Or whatever it is. It's maliciously evil when it distracts us from our true longing. This year, I want to invite you I want to invite all of us, and it's a practice that I myself am seeking to incorporate this year. Don't push back the darkness. Don't be afraid of the despair. Don't be afraid of the lost, of the loss. Don't be afraid of the questions. Don't rush to the manger, but wait. Let's take the next three weeks and recognize the longings that we have in our life. 
Recognize the pain, the confusion, the questions, the frustration. Recognize the limitations of what we or any political system or economic system or entertainment or anything like that. Just recognize the limits of it. And cultivate a space in our lives, in our community, for God to come and fill. For God to be the king who sits on the throne. For God to be the priest who continually offers the sacrifices so that everything is good with God and with people in the world. That we can welcome that at Christmas. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. Come on up. I started this message by sketching my own hopelessness or the hopelessness of my life as lived on my own terms. Listen, I didn't embellish the story. It doesn't need any embellishment. Friends, either the gospel meets us at the place of our deepest need, our deepest loss and loneliness, our deepest shame and guilt, our deepest wounding and wrestling, or it is worth nothing. Either the gospel meets us where we are, as we are, in the world as it is, or it is worth nothing. Actually, it's worth less than nothing. It did, if it doesn't do that, we need to ascribe it to the same place we ascribe Santa Claus and the tooth fairy and the elf on the shelf as just some kind of nice, inane fairy tale. No darkness that the light cannot penetrate. There is no despair that the hope cannot come to. There is no loss that the gospel cannot overcome. There is no pain and suffering that the gospel cannot address. And there is no death where the gospel cannot bring life. The table meets us now. There's no pre-qualification for this. You don't have to get it right. You don't have to think different. You don't even have to believe totally. You just come saying, God, I, I want to believe. I want to believe to come to the table. So I'm going to ask you to come. Come as you're, when you're ready. Hold the elements. Sit close if you would. We'll sing together and then we'll take the elements together. Thank you for being here this morning.